What's up and welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. Today I have Aisha Hakem and that's how you pronounce it. Aisha is an ACD at 72 and Sunny in Boston. Aisha's doing a masterclass for us on May 17, The Art of Deck Making. And today we're going to talk a little bit about the art of deck making, but also putting yourself into public, being on Twitter as someone in the industry, working your way from Twitter through LinkedIn and what that is all about. Aisha Hakem, welcome to Sweathead. Thank you. It's so good to be here. What's the mood out there right now? Tell me. I think there's a lot of uncertainty in a way I can't pinpoint and a lot of voices, which we're probably doing a good job of, of stopping that, putting our voices in the, in the ether. Have you been through this kind of cycle before? The economy, the industry, the kind of confusion, it feels like there's excitement, but also volatility, job loss, some good work coming out, but also a lot of not good work coming out. Like, have you been through this part of the cycle before? You know, no. I got into the industry around 2014, 2015, and I think that that was kind of on the tail end of one of these cycles. And I didn't really know what to make of the industry, so I didn't know how to assess it. By the time I was actually conscious in the industry, I think that that had passed. So this is my first time kind of dealing with this vibe and with this kind of, you know. We moved to the US, I think it was 2011, and that was when shops did sales. They were legit sales. By the time you entered the industry, everyone had worked everything out. They had computers working out pricing and sales and premium outlets. The prices were just a bit meh you know, compared to a few years before. So that's how I remember it because 2008, 2009 really knocked the wind out of out of the world and with the global financial crisis, which was what we called it in Australia, the GFC. It's like KFC, but without the spicy chicken. But yeah, that, the time that you came in, I guess it's mostly until the pandemic been rapid rise, right? Yeah, for sure. And I think that I was lucky enough to like be at shops that were on the forefront of that. And so when you're at the bigger places, you really feel that um, rapid rise. It's quite a high. And I think they also feel those that they come down pretty hard as well. But I, I've been lucky enough that I haven't been too much on the forefront of that, at least not so much that it's affecting like my day to day. I'd imagine because you've been around long enough to be senior to a lot of people in the industry, it's a young industry overall, I'd imagine the people come to you for advice especially when you're in the first decade of this industry, it's hard to really work out when you're going through something difficult. Is it me? Is it my company? Is it my clients? Is it the people I work with? Is it this leadership? Is it the city I'm in? Is it the state I'm in? Is it the country I'm in? Is it the year I'm in? How do you work through those kinds of confusions with people who look up to you? Oh man, I try to be honest about my own downfalls <laughs> and my own confusions. You know, I don't like when I put on a pedestal when when people come to me and they're like, "Oh my god, I really idolize your work and I love what you've done and I think you're so amazing." And I'm like, "Oh no, let me puncture the facade." <laughs> I don't, you know, I'm out here trying to figure it out too. So I think I just try to find things about my story or what I've gone through or been through that feel like familiar narratives to people and let them take away what matters to them or, or what is useful to them. I think when I try to give really prescriptive or actionable advice, it tends to not be as effective as when you just kind of talk about various things that you've been through and how you've navigated difficult situations and let them take what's needed and what is most applicable to what they're going through. Because I think everything is so variable in our industry. I laugh when people ask me, you know, how do I break in? And I'm like, oh man, do you have six days to talk about it? Because I need to know 
who you are, what your background is, what agency you're in, what work you want to do, what people you're working under, what brands you want to work on, what are you good at, what are you not good? Like, there's so much variable that it's really hard to give precise advice. And so I try to move away from that. Will you let me in? What are you mostly confused about right now when it comes to your career, the industry that you've chosen or that chose you? What are you mostly confused about right now? I'm confused about where my place is in the industry moving forward. Honestly, I have a certain style of work I like to do and less, fewer and fewer clients want to make that type of emotional, narrative, beautiful, expensive work. And when I look around and I look at where to make those things, it, I don't see it happening very often. So I see my trajectory kind of not coming to a halt, but I'm searching for how I can continue to make the work I want to make in a place that feels like it doesn't want to make that type of work. I think a lot of people would relate to that. Like It seems very bitty out there. I'd say the past decade, programmatic advertising, social media, calendars, hashtags, new platforms, platforms that grow and then disappear. It's really bitty. And a lot of people find safety in that because if you're making a lot of bits, then the bits only need to do okay. But if you want to do something that feels epic, and a lot of the research out there, I think, would suggest that doing epic stuff is where you need to focus most of the energy. It's hard, right? You're working to clients who are often very bureaucratic and conservative and scared of trying to hold on to their jobs, you know? So how do you think you're going to reconcile, my word, not yours, but the search for epic in a time where the game seems to be about having a lot of bits and pieces? I probably am disillusioned. <laughs> I'm hopeful. Like I feel very strongly that people react to emotional storytelling or else people wouldn't go to the movies. And I think I look at brands like Apple who have come out with multiple long form pieces in the past few years that have outside of the industry rushed, who have shot with great directors, who tell stories that have ups and downs and are fun and look great and people respond to those. And I think that at the end of the day, you know, emotional storytelling is what gets through to people. And I know that a lot of the feedback I get sometimes when I've talked about this with people is like, oh, well, you know, our audiences aren't that smart. I'm like, come on, you just made that up. <laughs> Yeah, or they're really rational. It's like you work with in B2B, for example, or with like a business audience and people are like, oh, they're really rational. Like, oh, yeah, what books have they read? Have any of them been to an Anthony Robbins conference or anything like that? It's not a conference, but, you know, one of those events. Have any of them read The Art of War? I don't know. But what you're talking about, and I feel like you're talking from a place of instinct here, what you're talking about is supported by science. Well, we'll call it science, by numbers. You know, you want to reach a lot of people in a really big emotional way. Humor is useful and humor has been dying in the industry. It's probably why it's a little less fun to work in. You want to reach a lot of people a lot of the time. So that's kind of where you need to be. To connect to where we're going to go right now, do you think in a way the fact that you have a, a public persona, if I can call it that, I know you wouldn't take that too seriously, but does that taint you? Like, do you get too much joy from that? If you're frustrated, you can turn up online and reach a few thousand people, maybe tens of thousands of people, maybe more through Twitter and LinkedIn. And it's like, well, I get my kicks there and, you know, fine, I haven't made anything. This is not what you said, but like maybe I didn't sell the idea in that I wanted to or it got renovated, hacked to pieces, renovated again. I like renovated. That's lovely. The fact that you can get your kicks and your hits from social media, does 
that taints you a little bit. Taint me in what way? It's like, I can get it there and that's easier. Maybe I should do more of that because I'm not necessarily getting it in the rest of my life. What an interesting question. I definitely don't feel more fulfilled by Twitter. (laughs) I enjoy being a voice in the room that people feel is relevant to what their thoughts are and what they're experiencing. And I would be lying if I said I didn't get a kick out of leading these group conversations, these hot takes, if you will, because if we're not having those conversations as a family, so to speak, as an industry, then I think that's a real missed opportunity to make the industry, and maybe I'm being, again, too like hopeful, so to speak, like make the industry that we all want to work in. I think we all want the same things. And I don't think there's any harm in having open conversations about it. I don't think it taints me so much as it makes me feel like now all of a sudden I have this persona to live up to where it's like my next work is coming out. And I'm like, oh man, what if people are like, oh, really? That's the work of the person who's preaching to us. (laughs) We're not going to listen to her. (laughs) There are definitely people who have a much more flavorful online presence than the work that they share that they make and it's like it's, it's interesting you know in a non-judgmental way it's on the one hand it's great that they must find fulfillment that they can be more creative more of themselves online or more of the person that they want to portray at least and then i'm like well that work it must be a little bit painful to make and in my head i'm just like imagine if the person that you were online that character that is capable of that level, this is not to you, but that level of like creativity, imagine if all your work reflected that too. That would be the goal, right? At some point you weren't on some of these channels and then you were, and then you started to pursue them. They became a thing. How did all of that happen? When I first got into the industry, it wasn't something that I knew about. I kind of stumbled into it. It was such a revelation to me because I just found the whole thing fascinating and amazing and glitzy and fun. And I wanted to know more and I wanted to meet more people who were doing it. And I went on Twitter to just see who was in the industry and if there was a presence there and found the RGA account. And that was kind of like the golden child of advertising Twitter, certainly. And just followed every, went through their followers and who they followed and just followed everybody. And I think I just saw it as an opportunity to hear what people were saying in the industry, but also as a junior, poke my head up and say, I have an opinion too. (laughs) I think it's fair to say that in advertising, a familiar name or a familiar voice tends to be taken more seriously. I think that it's very helpful to be an extrovert in this industry. I think it's advantageous. And I've always seen Twitter as part of the business, as a way to rise and have something else to bargain with in addition to the work that I was doing. And every time I'm at the point where I'm like, you know what, this is so dumb. I, I can't I can't do this anymore. This is juvenile or whatever. If someone reaches out to me or something happens or a connection is made and I'm like, wow, this is such a powerful business tool. And I think that that has made me stuck with it. And like I said, it helps that, you know, every once in a while someone will be like, oh, you know, the thing you said a while ago really connected with me or really helped me or I stood up in my agency and I had a voice and I pushed this and that lifts my spirits so high and I don't want to give that up. So I stick with it. When I'm talking to somebody who's umming and ahhing about taking social media a bit more seriously, I would explain the benefits as you had. I connect to that because before I wrote about this industry, I was in the music industry and I didn't want to be the guy writing about advertising. And then 2008 happened and I had a baby and I was like, oh, I need to write about this. I need to get out there so that I have a little bit of a reputation, but also I'm a little bit introverted and I mumble like, well, I don't mumble. I have a deep voice. And I'm like, I don't want to go into a room 
and really have to fight for my position. I want to have ideas out there that can be in the room before I get in so that it's a bit warmed up. And part of what you're talking about is, is for the nerds out there, it's called the messenger effect where like I could tell someone to go clean your room, but if you believe in gods, a god might say, go clean your room. Very different depending on the person or the thing from whom it's coming. But yeah, those benefits I totally relate to. What have been some of your favorite tweets? You've collected some for us. I asked you to, it's not that you said, hey, I have a little collection of my favorite tweets that I'd love to go through. I was like, hey, let's go through some of your tweets. Thank you for clarifying that. (laughs) Oh man, I didn't collect favorite ones necessarily. I collected a few that garnered a strong reaction. I think it's appropriate to start with this one because it got brought up back recently, which was no creative idea can overcome no media budget. That exploded to such a degree that it actually made me be like, maybe I shouldn't tweet. (laughs) As a creative, we're always pushed to think outside the box, and that's great. And I think that's one of the benefits of doing this job. One thing that I've become disillusioned with is when internally they'll say, well, the client doesn't have any money, but maybe if we give them an amazing idea, it'll go viral or we don't need a budget or it doesn't need me to like people will respond to it. I mean, maybe it's just never happened to me, but I've done a bunch of work that I'm really proud of that had no media and it just went up on YouTube and it just washed away into the sea of <laughs> of nothingness. And I think that some of the greatest campaigns in the last 10 years, um, for instance, REI's Opt Outside comes to mind. That was a brilliant media play. That was nearly more media than creative idea. It was backed up by pitch perfect creative, but that was a media idea. And I don't want people to get stuck in this place where creative has to do all of the heavy lifting because it's just not realistic. Yeah, it's true. It's true. People are infatuated with shortcuts. Oh yeah. They don't want to spend too much money. Look, I would add to that tweet and say, a media budget goes further with a good creative idea as well, you know, because we're talking about the debate between effectiveness versus efficiency and the world right now is very efficiency minded as opposed to what's going to work the best. A lot of people make their career off of this idea of we can give you more for less. You know, well, if we have a great PR strategy, then yeah, we don't need media. Or if I come up with a great creative idea, this other agent, well, your agency isn't smart enough or good enough or nimble enough. So they're not giving you these amazing ideas that are just going to explode into the ether with no media. And I think that that's kind of a scam. And I didn't realize that when I sent that tweet, I was trying to just defend the creative process, you know, not put it all on them, but I didn't realize that I was kind of upending revenue streams, so to speak, for entire businesses. Yes. And it's so funny when you tweet something that's just based on your personal experience and then it it triggers an entire industry. I've run hundreds of workshops, but I need to be very careful if I talk about how I don't really believe in workshops in the way that I've seen them done. As you know, I feel like to really get to good thinking, a person or a very small group of people, they need a little bit of alone time and they need some time off. They need to be able to sleep, do some exercise live life. And that's how the brain works. You know, you stimulate it and then you turn it off. Well, you don't turn the brain off, but you allow the subconscious to do some work. If I talk about workshops, I'm like, oh my God, I will definitely get attacked. Or if I talk about how I'm skeptical of personal branding and I find that people who focus on it are very shallow. Oh my God, I get attacked. It's interesting. And you're like, oh, I should be a little bit more aware of that and compassionate, to be honest. Let's do the next tweet. So the next one I pulled was right around Super Bowl. Outside of this tweet, I think we all agreed that the Super Bowl was kind of weak this year, the spots. 
shots weren't as good as normal as what we can kind of come up with as an industry normally. But I tweeted about my experience selling a Super Bowl spot because it's pretty unique. I was like a junior. I don't even think I was full time. I think I was permalancing. And I just needed some way to like get the attention of people. I permalanced for like three years at the same agency. And I was just like, please hire me. I really want, there's nothing. I really want to be an art director. And they were like, here, make some decks. (laughs) Get out of my office. I ended up breaking through because I just started writing scripts. Uh, I didn't have a writer partner and I wasn't briefed. And I just thought, well, there's no way I'm going to sell a Super Bowl spot. So the stakes are very low. No one is expecting anything of me and I can really turn in anything and they'll be like, great job, kid. And so I started writing spots and I sent it to my CD just to be like, hey, is this a script? (laughs) Is this an idea? And I remember he emailed me back and he said, oh, this doesn't suck. Yes. Great. And put me with a writer and we sold a spot. We sold a Super Bowl spot. It was my first, I guess you could call it brief. Like I said, I was not briefed. It was my, it was my first project. It was the first thing I ever produced and have not hit a career high since that. It's all been downhill from there. <laughs> That's like so many Americans peak in high school, right? Especially the athletes. Not all, but a lot. I'm like back in my day when I had a Super Bowl spot in 2014. <laughs> You know, and then afterwards I was like, no, they have to hire me. And they did. And without that break, I don't know how long it would have taken me to really arrive, so to speak. And it taught me a lot. And it taught me that I really like being in those high stakes, glitzy meetings with all the suits and like the attention, you know, all eyes on you. And it's like a dance, a performance. And I just was addicted just out the gate. So anyways, but I think it's important for people to know that story because so often I hear from juniors or students that are like, well, how do I go work at this great place or do great work or blah, blah, blah. And I think that people think they're just going to walk in the door and like work on great brands and sell great work. And it's so much grunt work. And it's all about what you do on your end. Like you just have to be absolutely annoyingly relentless. And if you're anything short than annoyingly relentless you might not hit your goals. And I just think that's an important thing for people to hear because this industry is a grind. I mean, I've been in the industry for 10 years and I like to remind people of that too. And they're like, how do I do the work that you do? And I'm like, oh man, how much time do you have? (laughs) Uh, Okay, not to go all thought leader on you guys, but I think this is an important one. It's how I sold a Super Bowl spot as a freelance junior graphic designer in my first brief ever. And then I went on to detail all the things that I just talked about and, uh, you know, how you have to be annoyingly relentless and how you have to rely on your creative directors necessarily because favoritism is definitely a thing and they have their favorite teams that they go to for big briefs. And I get it. Like, I totally get it. But I think that's a real dangerous way to think in this industry. Ideas can come from anywhere, right, Mark? Ideas can come from anywhere. Ah, smart person. Hey. Pull your mind out of those timesheets for a second and take a look at the Sweathead website. We have three membership levels, starter mode, flight mode, and beast mode. They give you access to a variety of strategy masterclasses, conferences, accelerators, and online learning, some of which has been known to make people cry because they like it, they like it, they feel seen. Make the most of your mind this year or any year and visit www.sweathead.com today. Now back to the interview. Do, 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 do. Your fetal position tends to end very well. Give us a third one. And thank you for allowing me to push you around a little bit. The thing is, like, if you're going to believe that ideas can come from anywhere, you still need someone who really gets ideas to shepherd the ideas through the system. 
it's lazy to say ideas can come from anywhere and then 30 people are in brainstorms for six hours a day. They don't even know what an idea is and they can't even write one up. They don't understand art direction or whatever. Like that's lazy. And that's an excuse to have like a cheap workforce and to throw shit at the wall. But yes, ideas can come from anywhere and some people are really good at them. And third thought, we've got a person or two who want this team to succeed with their ideas and we're going to have that person or those people shepherd the ideas through. Yes, those three things together. I agree. Yeah, I love talking to juniors and students, but I think we're not open enough as an industry about how hard you have to work at the beginning, like how brutal it is to really get to a point where you can make the type of work you want to do. But you have to you have to do a lot of other stuff before you can get to the point where you want to do the work that you want to do and I think it's kind of a point that's well, I don't know what's said in ad schools because I didn't go there, but you can be really knocked on your ass when you get in the industry and you kind of are faced with what is expected to be great. It sucks and it's hard and it's a lot less glamorous than I think it looks from the outside. I agree. I agree. Let's do the next tweet. This is probably my last interesting one because I didn't fully understand the assignment, but maybe one of my favorites. All right. Well, a few months ago, Hollywood went through this whole news cycle about nepotism babies. So the babies whose parents are famous or have a leg up. And there was a big article about it. And it was like an expose almost. Like, Did you know this person's parent is, I don't know, Harrison Ford? Uh, so I tweeted, Nepo baby article, but for advertising for men who are hired because they reminded a CD of himself. And that got a strong reaction. <laughs> yeah, that plugs into grievance and revenge and, there's a, and truth. Yeah, and also, but I'm different, you know. Someone responded, it's not the compliment they think it is. <laughs> but it's so real, I think, for women, especially in this industry. I don't know how many times I've heard from guys that are like, oh, yeah, I don't know. I got hired at Wyden because like the CD said that I was like him at my age. And I was like, what? That's annoying. <laughs> I'm never going to be able to do that. <laughs> have you ever hired anyone? And then have you ever hired anyone who reminded you of you? No, but I would. They would be amazing. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm not in the hiring position yet, but I'm hoping we're moving away from it. But I think it's so indicative of how this industry has been built for so many. Like there's a reason it's male dominated. And like, it's because that the men at the top want to hire other men that, you know, they can quote unquote, have a beer with and who they want to bring up the little baby versions of themselves. And like, that's such a huge part of the problem, right? I think I got a few good laughs from that and a few like jeers maybe, but I'm not like that. I'm one of the good ones. I'm one of the good ones. My last one is a point about remote work. Cause I know there's been so much discourse about like the work is bad. The work is bad. And I made the point that 72 and Sunny, I didn't work on it, but they did a, a spot for Super Bowl for NFL with a completely remote team. And they got number two in ad meter, which people care about. You know, I think we'd be lying to ourselves if people didn't want to be on ad meter. And I wanted to make the point that as someone who works remotely, you can make great work and be remote. Like those two things are not exclusive because I think we're all searching to the point we kind of talked about at the beginning, the vibes in the room. They're not Sunny Spring vibes, <laughs> spring day vibes. And I think people are really searching for why. And there's a lot of conversation right now on social media, trying to figure out why work feels so uninspired. And one of the points people are making is because of remote work. And I just think that's such a lazy answer. I think there's so much more at play. 
Yes, there is so much more at play. But also, there is a little bit of research out there, because people have been researching this even more intensely since the pandemic, where, look, I, I think, mm, this is not science, science, but, you know, a couple of days a week working with people, you get the vibes. And there's actually a concept called biorhythms. If you're in a cafe and there's a bit of sound going on and there's other people around you, our bodies respond to that, like literally respond to that. And so I think it's important to be around people at times. I know I yearn for it just to be able to kick things around. And sometimes it just feels lonely being in your head by yourself all the time. However, yeah, you could also make a really good Super Bowl ad without having to be in the same room as people. Right. So I think it's important to keep in mind that it's still possible. Like, let's not remove a whole work stream because of a broad generalization. There's so much more at play in the industry. And I think it's a lot more fingers to point outside of just remote work. But that one got a strong reaction because it is... People are searching for answers, and I think remote work is just an easy one. And, you know, it's important that we acknowledge that we haven't even really given remote work a chance to work yet. So let's not go pointing fingers so quickly. I think it's a little bit of that. We need to be around people. But if you go really broad and a little bit, I don't know, sad, there are countries that are depopulating right now. Young people are having less sex, I believe, compared to before, and people are partnering less and all these kinds of things in various parts of the world. So I'm speaking super generally right now. And, and so I, I think it's not just the industry or advertising that's feeling uninspired. People are feeling a bit flat about their futures. It's expensive. All the money's stuck up top with the older generations. They get all the tax benefits. Like everything seems rigged, all these things that I think there's a lot of truth in, to be honest, not, not in a conspiracy way. And then it's like, well, now I've got to work my butt off 80 hours a week to work out how to even be in this system that I don't even know I wanted to sign up for or that I want to be in anymore. And then you get remote work. <laughs> right. First, we have to address societal change. And then once we've figured that out, we can whittle it down to what, what is working and not working about remote work. It's all of it. But the thing is, when we point to the things that we want to fix, often the question to ask a team is, how can we work effectively together on this project? Let's just have an open discussion about it on day one, put it up on the wall, and then let's work like that because we can be responsible for our own lives. That sort of agency within agencies, I don't think it's very common. You know, it's usually the strong characters who are demanding of timelines that make things happen. And we all turn up and play their game as opposed to as a group going, hey, there's 10 of us working on this. Okay. Half of us are burnt out. Half of us haven't taken time off this year, but we think we can do something good here. How do we do that? What needs to happen for us to feel sane as we go through this and maybe do some of the best work of our lives? Start a project like that. Do you ever start projects with that conversation? No. It's an easy question to ask and you'd probably answer it within 20 minutes, right? But there's a roboticism where it's like, let's just do what the strong personalities tell us. And, oh, did you find out that they've been sitting on the brief for three weeks? Ah, again? And they've given us all these false deadlines. Ah, again? Yeah. So I think that question is an easy one to ask. And then it has to be more responsibility taken within the, the group to make sure that each project can have its own little subculture. That's what I believe. Well, yeah. And I think it's rich coming from advertising to say remote work doesn't work, right? Because just a few years ago, we were an industry where you had to sit at your desk because your boss was sitting at his desk. Of course, we're not going to turn around and say remote work is great. It's driving the industry forward. It's making the work better. Like it's such an easy scapegoat. You know, there is a story, I wasn't familiar with this, but a very, very, very famous, very reputable ECD who was at like the best shop in the country. Not going to name names, but he would online shop until 10, 11 at night, leave, knowing everyone was waiting for him, leave, 
wait in the lobby for people to come down for a gotcha moment. And now this person is on LinkedIn saying, you know, I'm not sure about remote work. (laughs) It's like, well, you wouldn't be. So I think it's important to also recognize where these arguments are coming from is, do we need to rethink how we're training juniors and students if they're remote? Absolutely. I don't think we've tried that yet. Do we need to prioritize when people can be together and can bond? So there is that familial relationship that I think leads to great ideas. Yeah, we need to figure out that too. But I also think that there are a lot of, you know, speaking of great ideas can come from anywhere. A lot of people can't afford as students or juniors or interns to move to New York City or LA or Chicago. And there's a big country with a lot of people. There's a big world with a lot of people who don't have the finances or the support to move to a big city with major agencies. And I think if we truly believe that great work can come from anywhere, remote work has to be a part of that conversation. Yeah. The first year I moved here, I was at Saatchi and Saatchi. I arrived right around the time the summer interns arrived and I was like, how? And a lot of the stories were that their parents got them the role and their parents were paying for them to live in New York. One thing that you published was The Art of Deck Making, and it started on Twitter, caught fire there, then it pops up on LinkedIn every now and then. Tell us a little bit about that, because that's going to be at the heart of the uh, the masterclass that you are doing for us for Sweathead. You're going to teach people The Art of Deck Making. But why do you think it caught on? I'll try to answer, but I still honestly don't really know. It's still something I'm, I think about. So I made that initially for VCU Brand Center right after COVID hit. A lot of internships were obviously canceled, summer internships. And so VCU made a free boot camp, summer camp, remote for people who had lost internships. So they didn't lose a summer learning. And I thought that was such a brilliant idea. It was totally free. You know, I'm all about like the democratization of of information and learning. And so when they asked me to come and teach a class, I was excited to do it. And I thought, you know, what is something that these kids are going to do right out the gate? They're going to make decks. I mean, that's how I started just for a little background. You know, when I was a freelance, permalance, junior designer, art director, they would just stick me in the in a conference room with a laptop. Back in my day, they would come in with external hard drives and I would take all of the decks from all of the teams and I would make a pitch deck or make a big client deck or something. And no one ever told me what decks were or what the purpose of the ideas were or what anything was. I just learned through kind of osmosis of what I was seeing. And it helped me also get a really great sense of the industry because there's strategy slides and there's setup slides and there's account slides and there's schedules. And so it was really great teacher in that way. So I was like, you know, I'll do a little thing on deck making and make it simple and easy to understand. And when they walk in the door, they'll have a great sense of how to put a deck together. And so I put it together with the idea that it would be for people who had no sense of it, advertising, like no sense of being in the door. And so when it took off, so I taught the class and it went well, you know, whatever. And I put it on Twitter and I think I just said, like, in case you missed it, here's my 10 commandments for deck making. And it got like thousands of likes and hits and retweets and it went on Fishbowl and it went on LinkedIn and, you know, every six months, someone will post it to LinkedIn and it'll blow up or I'll get an email from an agency where it's like, oh, your deck making just got sent out to the all agency and everyone loved it. And I was always really surprised by the response because it was so juvenile. Do you know what I mean? Like, I didn't think I was saying anything surprising to anyone who 
does this every day. But someone made the good point to me that sometimes the obvious things that we do every day are not said. It's the assumption that people know what we're doing, but it's not put out into the open in plain language. And I was like, oh, well, I hadn't thought of it that way. So yeah, it's kind of been my calling card now. But now it's very stressful because when I make a deck, I'm like, oh my God, it has to be amazing. <laughs> like, no, this isn't one of the amazing ones. This is just a throwaway. <laughs> people want fundamentals and decks can turn people into heroes. It's a big moment. You know, it can lead to millions of dollars of revenue for a you know decently sized agency. It can turn the people who make it and present it into heroes that will get more and more opportunity. There can be like a, an exponential speeding up of a career after a great presentation or several great presentations. So there's heroics and it's, it's like close to the money. It's close to the money. It makes money happen. And people are sort of jumping over the fundamentals right now. It's just, I feel like we've just been in this decade of too much freaking information and not enough, just simple common sense. Yeah. I think that we are in an industry where we speak in convoluted terms. We speak in code almost. And I think that it was kind of unnerving or surprising to have something put in such plain language. And, you know, going back to emotional storytelling, one of the points that I make in the deck is that a Nobel Prize economist said that 95% of people's decisions are made emotionally. And what more is a client buying a multi-million dollar idea? That is an emotional decision inherently because money is involved and anything where money is involved is an emotional idea or is emotional. And for me, that really is the root of it. Why would we put multi-million dollar ideas in a deck and present it in a way that's sloppy. That doesn't make any sense to me. Do you have a favorite way that you like to start presentations? I am obsessed with the cover slide. Like I will look for a cover slide image for like an hour and a half. <laughs> it's kind of like the table setting to me. Back in the day when we were in the office, you'd put it up on the screen and people would be taking their seats and it's this thing to look at. And it's like a trailer, it's like a movie trailer. I think a good cover image can give the client a little bit of a taste of like, well, is it gonna, are the ideas moody? Are the ideas big? Are the ideas funny? Like, and so to me, I think it's just an opportunity to say something without saying anything yet. And it's just a fun thing I like nerding out on where it's like, what can I put up there that's really gonna be captivating and interesting and cool, but not give too much away. I love it. I, I would say, I reckon I'm just going to make up a number. I would say 95% of decks start with like response to RFP and here's our logo and your logo. And it's like, if you're going to use slides, which you don't have to, if you're going to use slides, make every slide work. Otherwise, delete it, delete it. I like starting with a problem, right? So if we were to be selling in a presentation about deck making, I could imagine first slide being someone sitting under a waterfall, looking up into the waterfall, and there's just all these bad presentations falling on them through the waterfall because that's what it can feel like to be on the receiving end of a lot of bad presentations so i like to start there and the problem start in the action wow that is a very vivid drowning in bad decks <laughs> that's right that's why i like to be there I like to be there asia i know you've got a busy day coming up but we're going to get to spend three hours with you on may 17 if people are interested in also spending three hours with asia hakem on may 17 looking at decks please go to the sweathead.com situation the sweathead website at sweathead.com to find out more asia for people who are new to you and don't yet follow you on the internet where's the best place to find you if you have morbid curiosity you can look at my twitter i'm at asia made it and sometimes i say useful things and sometimes i say useless things so as long as you go in with that perspective then come follow me 
I love it. All right. Well, thank you also for sharing and being open with us about where your head's at right now and what you're hearing about the industry. Just to finish slightly optimistically, like this industry collects a lot of really talented and amazing people. I wish more meetings started with the question, how do we do our best work together? What do you need? What do I need? And let's do that. I feel like that simple question at the start of many meetings, I don't know, I feel like it could change the trajectory of many careers and companies. That's what I feel. Yeah. Well, maybe we should be more optimistic. Maybe it can. Maybe <laughs> that's what we're all missing. Can be. Aisha, thank you so much for joining me here on Sweathead today. Thank you for having me. Peace. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sweathead. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend, subscribe to our newsletter, find us on Instagram or LinkedIn at Sweathead. And if you're interested in finding out about our strategy, memberships, company training, or books, visit sweathead.com. Whoop, whoop.